it was probably around 5.30 in the morning and still pretty dark outside. I was getting wet and I think I was 8, 9, maybe 10 years old. My mom can confirm this with me later. She will also be able to tell me the mood that I was in when I came back in after being outside at 5.30 in the morning at 10 years old, wet and dirty. I think I was in a pretty good mood though. I was outside with my dad. We lived on an orange grove on the east side of Redlands, 10 acres. And every two weeks, the water would turn on and we would irrigate all the trees. So we'd get up before school, before work, to go out and check all the sprinkler lines, make sure they were working, check all the sprinklers, make sure they weren't clogged, flipped upside down. We had 24 hours to water half of the grove. And so we would go out and do all the checking, come back in, wet, cold, get ready, go to work, go to school. And then the next day, we'd go back out again, and we would move all the irrigation lines to the other half of the orange trees. And so what that involved was reaching down to a sprinkler, grabbing it, stopping it, and pulling it all the way down to the other end of the grove so that the other half of the row of trees could be irrigated. Now, usually what would happen at some point was that my dad would stop to fix something. And I found, as a young boy, that I would move on to the next row because he was doing something and say, no, go ahead. And I'd grab a line and pull it. And then if he wasn't with me yet, I'd grab the next line and pull it. And what would always happen was, when he would get done with what he was doing and he would walk through the rows to figure out where I was, he would find me. And then he would say something that always made me feel really good. Wow, great job. Thanks so much. You're such a big help. Oh, that just felt great. Like, what little boy doesn't want to hear from his dad that he's doing a great job? So it became a game. And every time my dad would stop to fix something, I would pull the lines faster and faster. Could I get three rows done before he caught up with me? Five rows. Seven rows. When I did seven rows, he was surprised. Wow, I mean, the, the accolades that I got from that were huge. And it just was absorbed inside very deeply in a good way and a not-so-good way. Because I started to learn that when I worked hard and when I worked fast, I felt really good. When I worked hard and I worked fast, I felt really good. Hmm, that can't go any wrong directions, could it? (laughs) Not at all. Like when I was a teenager working in the medical center in the cafeteria. I worked hard, and I worked fast, and our shifts got done early. And all the old ladies that were working in there eight hours a day were like, oh, Todd, thank you so much. We're done half an hour early. You work so hard. You work so fast. I got an employee of the month, and that felt really good. And then that same year, I got employee of the month again. And I'm sure a lot of employees did not feel good. But I felt good. And it just fed that little dragon inside. Work hard, work fast. It feels so good. And eventually when I got into ministry, I was a workaholic. And that started showing up in all the areas of my life that I couldn't see. And my marriage was hurting and I didn't even know. It's just 12 hours a day, 14 hours a day. Working near the Lord, but not with the Lord. So let me show you a little bit about how this works. It starts with time pressure. Time pressure is the sense that uh, there's not enough time for a task. It's just not enough time. How many of you have experienced that sometime in the last week? I got something to do. I don't have enough time. How many of you have felt that today? 
Exactly. You get up. Let's go, kids. Let's go. Let's go. Let's go. You got to get ready. You got to go to church. That's time pressure. We all experience it. No big deal. It's just the flow of life, right? But then it becomes time urgency. When you begin to feel time pressure on a regular basis, along with the conviction that you need to speed up the rate at which you're doing things. So time pressure becomes a regular experience through your day. And then in order to deal with that, you say, I've got to speed up. I've got to get going quicker. So it begins to change your behavior. You speed up the way you eat, the way you talk, the way you walk, the way you think. You start multitasking. You start focusing on efficiency. And here's the catch. You feel like you're in a hurry even when you have enough time. Which explains all the arguments that I get into with my wife when we're leaving on a camping trip. Because I've decided we got to leave at 8.16. We have all day to drive to Yosemite. But at 8.17, I am fuming in the garage. Like, where is everybody? I've been packing for four days. I've sped up to the point where even when I've got all day to do something, i got to do it now. This is time urgency. Then it moves on to hurry sickness. It's when you experience severe and chronic feelings of time urgency. So now time pressure has become regular to be time urgency, and time urgency, the sense of needing to hurry, is all the time. It's chronic. You're sick with hurry. It's an actual state that's been diagnosed. Hurry sickness. It's when you have this chronic feeling of time urgency that starts to change your personality and your lifestyle. Your new norm is to hurry. Your personality deteriorates as you're focusing on quantity versus quality. So you got to get things done. Got to get things done, including your relationships, which is what makes you impatient in conversations. Come on, we got to get this conversation over with. We've got to get this done. It's got to resolve this. We've got to move on. You're not focused on the person anymore. You're focused on productivity, efficiency. Trust me, I know the quickest route anywhere in the Inland Empire. I know the routes with the stop signs rather than stoplights, because stop, stop signs, you just stop at and then go. Lights, you've got to sit around and wait, right? I actually know some of the routes at which, if you go that way, you have more right turns at the lights than left turns. Because a right turn, yeah, exactly. Right turns, you get there, check, zoom, you're gone. Left turns, you got to sit there and wait. Okay, clearly I've suffered from hurry sickness and I still do. You should not be laughing. You should be praying for me. <laughs> as I will be praying for all of you. You develop racing mind syndrome, which loses the ability to concentrate on one thing at a time. Mind is hopping all around. You're preoccupied with the past or the future, which means your attention to the present moment is limited to tasks or problems or crises. You can't enjoy the moment like a butterfly. Be still enough to, to see a little critter wander into your midst because it doesn't even know you're there. You're just moving so fast all the time, you can't be still. You're just paying attention to problems and crises, not what's actually happening around you, including God. Well, this is linked to heart disease. It's linked to a host of psychological problems. But the greatest casualty of all is our relationships. If you die, that's one thing. But if you kill all the relationships around you, that's another. And hurry sickness just kills you and everyone else. It's like a relational atom bomb that just, boom, goes off. Well, the remedy, as the studies are showing, are solitude and silence, learning to be still. 
Should it surprise us at all that the cure for this was given to us by God in Scripture? He's like, I know what you're going to need. I'll prescribe it now. Hey, doctor. Where'd she go? Doctor, sit still. Learn to take doctor's order, doctor. Right? We're so bad at that. We're so bad at that. But God says, hey, I got it for you. And he gives it to us in a psalm. Psalm 46. It's broken up into three stanzas, sung one at a time. The first stanza starts like this. God is our refuge and strength and ever-present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth give away and the mountains fall into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam and the mountains quake with their surging. Salah. Oh, this word, this mysterious word that just shows up in the Psalms. Like, what does it mean? Nobody really knows. It's really hard to translate. But I'm going to share three of the most commonly um, commonly supposed definitions for what it means as it exists in between the music. We sing the first stanza, and then it says salah, which could mean stop and listen. Let's pause and open ourselves up to hear what might be out there aside from ourselves. And as we stop at this stanza and we listen, it says the world seems to be collapsing around us. But God is not collapsing. He's a fortress. He says, come live inside of me. I will not fall down when you and your world are falling down. I am strong. I can be your strength. So, let's pause. What in your life feels like it's falling apart right now? What are you trying to hold together that feels like it's crumbling? Salah. Stop and listen and hear God say, I am your fortress. I am strong. Make your home in me your fortress. As we move on to the second stanza, it describes a river. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy place where the Most High dwells. God is within her, this city. She will not fall. God will help her at break of day. Nations are in an uproar. Kingdoms fall. He lifts his voice and the earth melts. The Lord Almighty is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Salah. Another possible meaning for this is that it's signaling a change in thought or theme. A change in thought or theme. It's saying whatever is happening, shift your thoughts to the fact that the Lord is almighty and he is with us. So what are the voices that are in an uproar around you? It says the nations are in an uproar. Isn't that true? Whether you watch national news or international news, you'll find out the world is blaring right now with noise. And it's saying, I know. I know it's loud. 
It's all in an uproar, and you're listening to so much, a cacophony of chaos. Listen to me. Let me bring something new to you, a change in thought. And let that thought be, verse 7, I am with you. I am not just a fortress, but I am with you, not near you, not around you, not watching you. I am with you. Pause and let that change your thoughts. Let that change the theme of your life right now. God, this is what I'm going through. This is what I'm hearing from myself and the world. Change the theme of my life to being with you. Let me enter all those places with an acute awareness of being with you. And you, the Almighty, who can speak and melt the chaos around me. But you are with me. That's a nice thought. Let's salah on that for a while. Just take that everywhere we go. Psalm 46, 8 through 11, the third stanza. Come and see what the Lord has done, the desolations he has brought on the earth. He makes wars cease to the end of the earth. Isn't it beautiful that the desolation he brings is against war? He's a war wrecker. He's a peace breather. That's what he is. He makes the wars cease to the ends of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear, the weapons we use against each other. He breaks those. So we don't have anything except our arms and our hands and hopefully his love. He burns the shields with fire. He says, and here it is, be still and know that I am God. In the middle of the wars, in the middle of the tension between us and around us, he says, be still. He's not just saying, hey, you sitting there with your cappuccino in your happy little place, be still. You're like, oh, I'll be a little stiller than I already am. He's like, I know, it's chaotic. I'm speaking into that chaos. I'm the one who brought light and form and creation with my voice. Be still in the chaos and just hear me speak because I will be exalted on the earth. I will be exalted among the nations. All those uproaring nations right now, they will eventually raise their voices to praise me. Trust me with the end. And then it says again, the Lord Almighty is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Salah. A third possible meaning is a change in rhythm or melody. That's good. It's a tempo change coming. A change in the melody like, it could be a key change from, from minors to major. It could be a lift. He's saying, be still. The Lord Almighty is with us. I know there's tension. I know there's battles that are coming upon you. Salah, let me change your rhythm. What happens to the rhythm of your heart, the melody of your heart, when you ponder, he is saying to be still in all of this that he will take care of it in his time and his way and that the end will be that he will be exalted. What am I so worried about? Can your heart beat differently? Can it sing a different song when you realize that no matter what you're in, God will be on the end of it and it will be glorious? The last chapter will be good. 
no matter how hard, no matter how dark it is, the ending is going to be great. So, it's a beautiful psalm, right? Spend time in it. Look at what that does. This was not just a psalm. This was Jesus' way of life. He lived this. It says, the scriptures say, Jesus often withdrew to lonely, quiet places to pray. He fed the 5,000, and what did he do? Big moment for ego. Big moment to feel like, hey, we got some momentum going. I mean, if I went out there and preached a sermon and 5,000 people including all the women and children who were there, and I came back and sat down with the staff, everybody would be saying, okay, how are we going to market this? How are we going to like send this out on social media? How are we going to capture all this and roll it forward? Do we need five services now? What do we need? Jesus says, hey guys, go get in a boat and be alone because you need to be still. And I'm going to go up on the mountain and I'm going to be alone. Because what I want to do is stop and listen. Salah. I want to receive my thoughts from God. Salah. And I want to change the rhythm. It's been pretty hyperactive today, right? A lot going on. A lot of questions from people. A lot of positive energy. I just want to calm back down. Change the rhythm. Make sure my melody in me is in tune with the melody of the kingdom. That's what he does. Salah. He lived it. He didn't just say it. He lived it. And then he goes back into active ministry with a soul that's been calibrated, a perspective that's been refreshed, and a rhythm that is healthy and unhurried. So just by show of hands, let's springboard this into the story of Mary and Martha. And without showing and telling why, how many of you have always been a little perturbed by the story of Mary and Martha? You know, Mary's sitting at his feet, Martha's working in the kitchen, Jesus is like, hey Martha, stop. Anybody bothered by that? Okay, the other way to raise your hand for that is any workaholics here with us today? Like any of you defined by work, any of you were like me, where my identity was so rooted in productivity and work that when God said, be still, I was like, I don't know how to be still. I don't even know how to sit still. How can I be still if I can't even sit still? When I wasn't productive, I didn't know who I was. And that's what used to bother me about the Mary Martha story. I was like, well, I'm Martha. Why are you picking on her? Well, God's been unpacking this through my life. He's trying to make a point to Mary and Martha. Mary's sitting at his feet, just receiving his love. And Martha's in the kitchen prepping everything, right? He does not criticize her work. He says, Martha, you're worried about many things. He's not speaking out against the work. He gave us work. He gave us work in the garden when everything was perfect. There was work. Work brings meaning. Work brings a sense of all kinds of good things. He spoke against the worry. He knew that her heart was working out of the wrong place. And he says, Mary's got the right thing going. She knows that there's a time to achieve, but there's a time to receive. And we've got to get those in the right order. She's receiving right now. And when you receive love, then you work out of love. And you're working out of trying to earn love. You're trying to prove yourself. You're worried that if the meal isn't right, that maybe I won't want to come here again. Or who knows what she was worried about, but it wasn't coming out of love. It was coming out of anxiety and pressure and obligation. And he's trying to heal that part of her and liberate her from that. Come sit and be loved. Receive first, 
and then let's go achieve something together. If you sit with me, maybe I'll make lunch. I fed 5,000. I think I can feed three of us. Who knows? Maybe he would have made lunch for them himself. Or maybe he would have gone into the kitchen and they'd have chopped it all up and kneaded it all together. I don't know. But he's calling her to receive first. This is, this is what's happening at Pentecost. Jesus, in his last time with the disciples, he says, hey, go to Jerusalem and stay there. Be still. Know that I'm God. Don't go anywhere. I'm going to send you the Holy Spirit. You need to receive before you achieve. Right? So they go, and they sit still for a little while. And then Peter, like Mr. Gumption, can't sit still. He's like, hey, guys, remember the prophecies? They said this and this and this and this and this, and so therefore that kind of explains Judas, and now there's only 11 of us, and there's supposed to be 12 because there are 12 tribes of Israel, and it really lines up well, so we need a 12th person. So let's vote. And they vote. They form a little committee, just like us, and they vote. And they bring in a 12th disciple who we never hear from again. Ever. That's it. That says 15 seconds of fame right there. I'm sure he did wonderful things with God. But the point kind of is, they were supposed to sit still and receive before they started achieving. And that day, they went out and they achieved something. They voted somebody into the group and they made the number complete. And God said, that's great, but that wasn't the person I was appointing. I'll bless him, but I'm going to send you the Holy Spirit. And you're going to receive the Holy Spirit. And then look what they achieved with the Holy Spirit that day. 3,000 baptisms. Receive and then achieve. I don't know. Maybe the Holy Spirit was supposed to be the last apostle rounding out the 12. Who knows? Receive before you achieve. But we as Christians are so good at saying, yep, God gave me this call. He gave me this ministry. He gave me this mission. I got to go out and achieve. And we just rush right past God. And he says, do you want to receive my love? Do you want to receive my power? Do you want to receive my wisdom? Or do you want to go out there and do it yourself? Because if you go do it yourself, I'll still be with you. But in a way, I'm going to kind of let you do it on your own. So you see how that goes when you do it on your own. And then maybe you'll want to do it with me. Because it's just so much more fun when we do it together. So my spiritual mentor... Uh, one of them, Chuck Miller. Wonderful, beautiful man. Cubs fan. He died the year they won. I don't know if God did that on purpose just for him. Great guy. He was in the hospital. Had a lot of downtime. A lot of time to be still. And he was praying, saying, God, will you give me a way to communicate this to other people? I'm preaching John 15 all the time. Abide in me. Apart from me, you can do nothing. But if you abide in me, I'll produce fruit in you. Much fruit. Fruit that lasts. Not this temporary fruit that seems to achieve something and then it just fades away. And Chuck was praying, Lord, give me a picture, something to share with people so that John 15 comes alive. This idea of being still and receiving from God comes alive and they can see it. And God gave him a picture. And it goes something like this. This is a picture you can tell it's a pitcher because it's got a little spout. It's designed to have something in it that it pours. And this represents all that God has for you. His love, his wisdom and discernment, his strength, his peace, his correction, his truth, 
His grace, His mercy, everything that He is, He wants to pour it out. And He's ready to pour. I can't get Him to pour what I want when I want, but He is pouring. He is the pourer. I'm the receiver. And that's why we're the cup. Obviously, a cup isn't anything. It can't fulfill its purpose unless it's received something. So it has to receive first. And God says, will you just be still and let me pour into you? We say, sure. Great. Thanks, God. And then we go out in the world and then we're like, we just pour it out. He says, that's fine. I poured it into you. You can pour it out. It's for the world. But if you just sit still and let me pour into you and pour into you and pour into you, do we have to run around all the time? Or could it come out into the world some other way? My cup overflows is a verse that seems to come to mind, right? He just pours into us and pours. And when we be still, then we know that he's God as he just fills us up and we start feeling and sensing and thinking and doing things that don't make sense to us. We drive down the freeway and we're not mad when somebody cuts us off. We're like, that wasn't me. And we're gracious or humble in a situation where we were always triggered a different way in the past. We're like, is this magic? No, this is God. He's filling me up with Him. Well, cups typically go with a saucer, at least over in the UK, right? Cups and saucers go together. And the saucer represents all the relationships in your life. These are your family members, your friends, your colleagues, your coworkers, acquaintances, strangers, frenemies, enemies, you name it. All the relationships that are in your life in some way. And God says, you know, I would love to pour out of you onto them. Wouldn't that be great? If you just received from me and then I just poured out in everybody around you? Like, oh, no wonder the cup and the saucer go together. Makes sense. Well, this is the plate. And you might notice the plate has something that the others do not, and that is the lack of life. If you look at all the others, they've got some form of life on them, right? Lack of life. And this represents your plate. How full is your plate today? You have a lot of things you need to get done. Like, what time is Sabbath end tonight? 7.20 something? Like, because I got to get going at 7.31. I got things to do. I got to hit the ground running tomorrow. Like, I got work on Monday, so tomorrow's going to be a full day. I got a lot on my plate. I got bills to pay, and I got, like, syllabuses to sign for my kids and forms to fill out and permission slips, and I got to get approved as a volunteer at the school, and then I got to, like, redo our life insurance or refinance. Well, I better not refinance right now. That'd be really stupid. I got all these things that I have to get done. God cares about these things. But he also knows that none of this is going to be an eternity. None of it. He wants you in eternity. He wants all of them in eternity. He died for you. He died for them. He didn't die for your mortgage. He's making a house for you. He doesn't need you to refinance it. If you want to, sure, that's wise. But he says, we'll get to that. It's just not crucial. You are crucial to me. You're everything to me. So if you just be still and know that I'm God, then what I will do 
is I will just pour into you as I love to do. It is why I created you, to give you myself and to see you just overflow onto all of my other creations. This is the way of the kingdom. And it actually works. Now, I'm going to pause for a second. Some of you are like, yeah, it's odd, but being still, that's just not me. Well, guess what? It didn't used to be me either. It's still not me in a lot of ways. I'm a speed addict. Not the drug, but, you know, the, like, tempo, right? Alan Fadling, he opens his book, An Unhurried Life, with that line. I'm a speed addict. I totally resonate with that. I've been living so much of my life going 90 miles an hour down a dead-end street. Just racing, racing, racing everywhere. And God is teaching me to slow down. So if I can do it, you can do it. So no excuses today, okay? Our God is big enough that he can slow down a little person like me. And he can do it for you too. And when we just sit and be still and let him pour into us, it fills us up and overflows out of us. And I know that when there's something wrong with my loving, it's because there's something wrong with my abiding. It's very simple math. Kids, when I'm stern with you, when I'm short-tempered, when I'm impatient, it's because I need more Jesus. Thank you for you. Yeah, she's like, I know, Dad. <laughs> Theologically, I'm way ahead of you. <laughs> That's a formal apology, and it's a disbursement of truth. It's just who I am. I'm broken, and I leak, and I have to sit still and let God pour into me, and I'm a better husband and a better dad and a better man and a better citizen in the world and a better child of God when I just be still. So... Three weeks ago, I hosted a spiritual retreat, and two members from our church came on that retreat, and I asked them if they would come up so that they could share from their perspective a little bit of what happened in terms of what God poured into them when they just sat still with Jesus. So Priscilla and Keturah, what did God pour into you when you just sat still with Jesus? So the past few years have felt like a long wilderness experience for me. And so when I, when I signed up for the retreat, I was hoping to hear God more clearly. I felt like God was being very silent with me. And in the hours that we spent in silence at this retreat, I was expecting maybe something big like Elijah, you know, and this big, loud um, uh, earthquake or something. And I noticed that God came to me in a very quiet way in the sense that I started looking back over the past few years of this wilderness experience, wondering where God was. And I realized that God had been showing me all the places that I needed healing. He had been showing me all the things that he liked about me. He had been showing me mm -hmm. all the dreams and the plans that he had for my life. And looking back while at this retreat, I could see that I was looking for God in these external ways to change my circumstances, but really he was with me the whole time. I just needed to be still and know that he was right there inside of me. Amen. Mm, amen. Thank you. I'd never experienced prolonged silence until this retreat. Noise had become like company for me. Sometimes when I'm home, I'll listen to music or something on YouTube. When I walk, I listen to music or a podcast. When I'm in the car, I'll listen to music or the news. So when we started our quiet time, it took me a while to settle into the quiet. 
At first, I couldn't keep still. I walked around the beautiful grounds where we were. There was a labyrinth that I walked in and prayed. I reached for my phone to check the time and notifications. This is something that I do multiple times a day, and I did not have my phone. I'm thankful that Pastor Todd gave us the option to leave our phones with him. I finally sat on a bench and took a little nap. When I woke up, I started to settle into the quiet, and I was filled with gratitude for the space and the time we had to spend uninterrupted time with God. One of my prayers during this time was, teach me to abide. I don't do this very well, Lord. Would you help me? One of the songs that came to my heart was a simple chorus that says, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, you shall ask what you will, and it shall be given to you. Those words come from John chapter 15, verse 7. I looked at the tree next to the bench where I sat and the rest of the beautiful nature around me, and I was reminded that we can learn so much from nature about what it looks like to abide. For example, being rooted in Christ, in scripture, in good community, being still and dwelling in God's presence, letting him pour in so that I, in turn, can pour out, and having the trust that God will provide what I need to do the things he has called me to do. I'm grateful for the experience. I see value in stillness and quiet. It is my prayer to be like a tree planted by the streams of water, which yields fruit in season, and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever she does prospers. Amen. 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 Thank you. Thank you. I asked them to come up because if I share about it, you know, it's my experience. But when you hear from others who didn't have a lot of experience being still and went through the discomfort of being still, and then you hear how God met them, and you think, wow, maybe that's available to me too, which it is. Because I remember the very first time that I got still and was really uncomfortable. And then God just began to use that and move through that and put himself into me and pour into me and is changing me. And I want more of that. And I'm really thirsty for more of that. So how do you do this? A couple practical application tips. One of them, read scripture slowly. Read scripture slowly. We went through Psalm 46. It's 11 verses long, right? We spent, what, eight minutes in it? Slow down. Here's an idea for you. When you read the Bible, are you trying to learn something new? Because I've found that insight is the consolation prize to my time in the Word. Insight is a consolation prize. So when I go to Scripture and some neat idea comes out, God gives it to me or whatever, I'm like, ooh, wow, that's really good. I could preach that. Like, i got to write that down. i got to use that. Okay, that's the silver medal. And it doesn't always happen. Sometimes I go and it's just really quiet. And I'm learning, maybe God knows that sometimes I just need to settle down. But sometimes he gives me something. But that's the silver medal. Insight is the consolation prize. Encounter is the grand prize. I want to move into the Word in a way where when I read the Word, the Word reads me. And I sense a dialogue starting to happen between God the Father and myself. 
And I take the words and I slow down enough to find out which ones are really resonating with my soul. And I just speak those to God. And then I pause and I listen. God, what do you want to say back? How are we starting to communicate through this together? Slow down. Read less and let it be more inside of you. Because I've met a lot of active, productive, busy Christians who are worshiping the idols of productivity. And they're so busy and they're so tired. And Jesus is saying, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden and I'll give you rest. And they say, no, 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 I'm doing the come follow me part. And he says, no, you need to come to me. There's a time to come and I will send you, but I want to send you out of my love and not just you on your own. Come to me. Come be still. See that I am God. I will keep the world spinning even if you're not out there trying to turn it. I can do it. Trust me, I made it. I can keep it going. Here's a second tip. We'll do it as a prayer together. It's a prayer that I started learning uh, just in quiet prayer time with Jesus about three years ago. It's basically four lines. It starts like this, and you can bow your heads and pray this with me. I'll walk you through it. Whenever I feel rushed and I remember to pray, this has been my settling prayer, my, my be still prayer. I do it in the car, do it in the house, do it in an argument when I move into the other room for some space, maybe pray it in the closet. And it goes like this. Jesus, here I am. And I just take a moment to breathe and to ponder what it means to turn and just put my focus on God. Saying, God, here I am. It's me and you. I'm facing you. I'm turning away from all that other stuff. Here I am. As I am. This is the second part. I just take a moment to breathe and to acknowledge that as I'm there with God, I just am who I am. I'm nothing more, I'm nothing less. Don't try and prop myself up. I might move into a little confession, but I just say, look, here I am, Lord, with you, as I am. This is just me. With you. Take another moment to breathe and ponder that he is with me and that I'm with him. There's a togetherness. My creator is with me, the created. And just as he breathed me into existence, I can breathe him in, receive his spirit. I'm with him. As yours. And with these last words, I just breathe again and ponder what it means to be God's. We are his beloved. We are sheep and he's our shepherd. He is our general and commander in chief. He is my savior. He is my friend. He is my counselor. I am all of these things under him and all of his greatness. It's a simple prayer. Here I am as I am, with you, as yours. Amen. Read the Bible slowly. 
Learn to settle yourself in prayer, just receiving God for who he is. Let him pour into you and see what overflows.